So my father is also um, a minister. He's a pastor. And uh, early on, after my ordination, we were talking a little bit about baptism. And he said, yeah, you know, Presbyterians, we sprinkle, but it's a visible, it's a visible sign, so make sure you get them good and wet. And um, I, I take that to heart, so thank you, Winshing. I at least warned her. I've forgotten to warn people in the past, and they're like, I didn't know how wet I was going to uh, get. So, well, thanks, Winshing. Real honor to be here. We're taking a break from Habakkuk this week. We're going to look at a story that Jesus told, one of his parables, uh, from Luke 16. Luke 16, starting at verse 19. It's the famous story of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, and it's a story about life and death. And so today we're going to take a look at those themes. Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. And now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your death and your resurrection. And we pray that that would be enough for us, that we would believe, that we would know and that we would trust you. We need your help, Holy Spirit, so come now. Soften our hearts, open up our ears, enlighten our minds, that we may know you and follow you rightly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's the story of life and death. And the life that we see, we actually see two. Two lives. The life of a winner and the life of a loser. Uh, first, let's look at the winner, this rich man. We see what a winner he is based on uh, his food and his clothing. Look at his clothing. It says he's dressed in purple and fine linen, expensive garments. What's interesting about this purple, purple is extremely expensive. It was a status symbol 
It was expensive because in order to make the dye that they used to make the purple clothing, they had to harvest these sea snails and pull them out of their shells and squeeze them, and they'd get one or two drops of ink per snail to make these garments. Imagine such a laborious and tedious process just to color your clothes. But people wore it. If you saw someone in a, in a purple garment, it just screamed, wealthy, winner, successful. It's the chrome rims that still spin when you stop at the stoplight. That's, that's what he's <laughs> got on. And his food, it says he feasted sumptuously. Um, meat was a rarity. And a feast like the one Jesus is describing is something that even if you were fairly well-to-do, middle class, upper middle class in this society, you would have a feast like that maybe once a year at a wedding or some special occasion. But this is a daily activity, what the average person would only do a couple times maybe in their life even. And as I read the story up to this point, the truth is this is the man I want to be, right? I mean, he's... He's Don Draper and Lord Grantham all rolled up into one. Like, who doesn't want to hang out with him? He's a winner, and I either want to be him or I want to be associated with him. If I see him on the street, I want to get near him. I want to introduce myself. I want to take a selfie with him and share it so the world knows that I'm at society's cool table with the winners. And then there's a winner, but there's a loser as well. This loser has a name. His name is Lazarus. And look at his clothing. His clothing is sores, open wounds. And look at his food. It says he desires to eat the scraps from the table. If you're a fan of Seinfeld, do you remember the episode where George Costanza ate out of the trash can? And everyone was appalled, and he spent the whole time trying to say, no, it didn't touch anything else, and even though it didn't touch the other food, everyone was revolted. This man aspires to that. It doesn't, it doesn't say he gets the scraps. It says he longs for them. His aspiration is to eat someone else's trash. It's a miserable existence. And this is the person that I don't want to be, and this is the person that I avoid. And this is the person who, when he makes eye contact with me as I'm walking by, I pretend to not see him, and I move right along. Jesus' audience and us, it's clear who we want to be in the story so far. And seniors who are graduating, the rest of your life, people are going to want you and tell you that you need to be a winner. That the good life is winning, is acquiring things and status and wealth. There's an extraordinary pressure for that. This is a story about life, but also, of course, it's a story about death, about death Lazarus dies first, and that's no shock, right? He's starving to death, he's sick, he has open wounds, and his physician is a dog who licks him. We're not surprised that he dies. But then the amazing thing right there in the same verse, the rich man dies too. His money and his status gave him everything in life, but it couldn't hold back death. The death makes winners and losers exactly the same. At the end of the game, the game of life, we all die, unless Jesus comes back first. I quote this often 
and repeat it to myself often as well. This is from Pete Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's wonderful. I recommend it. But Pete lists five basic truths that this passage just screams at us. First, life is hard. Life is hard. Second, you are not that important. Thanks, Pete. Third, your life is not about you. Fourth, even if life was about you and you were that important, you're not in control. Think about how much sleep I lose thinking about things that are out of my control. And I've deceived myself into thinking that by not sleeping and thinking about them, I could change them, but I'm powerless. You are not in control. And finally, number five, you are going to die unless Jesus comes first. We're all going to die. Now, if you were to sit down with Lazarus before he died and list those five things for him, hey, Lazarus, life's hard. You're not that important. It's not about you. You're not in control and you're going to die. He would say, right, yeah, tell me something I don't know. Like, this is my daily life. He knew that well. But interestingly, the rich man, we can call him Richie Rich. Richie, even after dying, hasn't figured this out. Look at what he does. He's still giving orders. Abraham, send Lazarus to give me a drink. Send him to me so he can quench my thirst. Oh, that's not going to work. Okay, well, at least... Send Lazarus to my brothers. He's still trying to control. He still wants to be the boss. Still thinks Lazarus is his errand boy. But Abraham has another thing coming for him. Saying, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. I'm going to read a quote from Robert Capon, commentator. He says this about the rich man. The rich man has learned nothing and forgotten nothing. Send Lazarus indeed. He still thinks of himself as a winner who by divine right can command lackeys like this beggar to fetch him drinks. So Abraham carefully explains to him the realities of the situation. One, the rich man had a whole lifetime's worth of good things while Lazarus was up to his eyebrows in misery. Two, just in case he hasn't noticed, things have definitely been reversed. Score at the end of the last game of his heretofore winning season, rich man zero, Lazarus 1,000. And three, the rules of the league are such that far from being able to demand overtime in which to even out the score, he isn't even going to be allowed to punt. Between you and us, Abraham tells him, there is a great gulf fixed. It's fourth down and 10 million yards to go, rich man. I don't make the rules here. I just call the plays as I see them. The game is over. He goes on. Well, maybe Abraham will give him at least a brownie point if he does a mitzvah and arranges to have Lazarus deliver a singing telegram to his five equally rich brothers, warning them about the possible disastrous consequences of their present investment programs. Abraham, though, is unenthusiastic. It's an understatement. 
Having Lazarus schlep all over the Middle East ringing doorbells is just another of the rich man's bossy, when you care enough, send a lackey ideas. Besides, why should Abraham interrupt this resurrection tete-a-tete he's having when none of the brothers will listen to his advice anyway? Listen, he says, they've already had a whole Bible full of telegrams. They should get them out of the wastebasket and try reading them. Verse 31 is amazing, isn't it? Look at it. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, even if someone should rise from the dead, they will still not believe. It's a story about life and death. It's also a story about resurrection. Lazarus, interestingly, is the only character in all of Jesus' parables who's given a proper name. Isn't that something? Lazarus. So we should give some attention to that, especially when the story is about his potential resurrection. And of course, if you know, in the scripture, John chapter 11, Jesus raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. So it's echoing at us. It's saying, think resurrection. Think about Lazarus. What's interesting about that miracle in the gospel of John, it's at that point that the Pharisees and the religious leaders decided to put Jesus to death. After the resurrection of Lazarus, they got together, they're colluding, they're conspiring, they're talking about this man who's raising people from the dead. And John writes, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It's a crucial point in the ministry and life of Jesus. And of course, the resurrection of Lazarus was pointing ahead to the resurrection of Jesus. Afterwards, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And, of course, the resurrection of Christ, that he died and rose again, is the central claim of Christianity. It's what our faith is all about. And it's still Easter season. We celebrate it for weeks. We've got two more weeks, actually, in Eastertide. So we continue to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord in the church around the world. And though we make a big deal of it and we celebrate it, we have to acknowledge and understand it's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? That a man was dead and then alive again. That's not normal. That's not something that we are used to seeing. It's easy to doubt that. So I'm going to list for you quickly six evidences that Jesus physically rose from the dead. Okay? We'll go through them fast. One, bare historical minimum, the tomb of Jesus was empty. Well recorded, well documented. If, if this whole thing was a scam, all the Jews and the Romans had to do is produce a corpse. Here's the dead body of Jesus movement over, cult stopped, peace restored in the community. They didn't, because the tomb was empty. Second, there are many, many, many recorded resurrection sightings. Many people claimed to see him alive, people named by name, over at least seven specific appearances, and Paul records one in which he says there were 500 people there, many of whom are still living, he says. In other words, Paul is saying, go ask. Ask around. It was widespread in the community. Many credible eyewitnesses were claiming to have seen Jesus alive. Third, the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. Now, in that culture, what's the big deal about that? And that's recorded for us in the Gospels. Well, in that culture, women were not considered credible. They couldn't testify in court. Their testimony wasn't credible because of basic misogynistic uh, beliefs in the system there. Uh, Well, of course, that's what a woman would say. You know, this is sort of the idea of the culture. 
However, in the Gospels, they put front and center very clearly that the women were the first ones there. Now, if you're making something up, do you want to give a credible witness or one who can't even testify in court to pull the wool over everyone else's eyes? The reason it's in the story is because the Gospel writers were telling the truth. Because the women saw him first, and Jesus thought they were credible witnesses, even if the rest of society didn't. Fourth, new beliefs. New beliefs that happen quickly. Typically, it takes a while for a worldview to shift and change, for religion to form as you study these things. And yet, belief, these Jews, these Pharisees had a belief in a last day resurrection, but they had no idea. They didn't, they didn't have a concept for the, a Messiah rising again. It wasn't something that they had thought prior to Jesus. And the Greeks thought that it was a bad idea altogether. My body is a cage. When I die, I'm trying to escape from it. Why would I want to get back into it? That's crazy. It's not a good idea. And yet you've got Jews and Greeks talking about this resurrection and believing in it. And then, of course, that these Jews were worshiping a man. They're praying to a man named Jesus Christ. The hardest people in the world to convince to worship a man. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. These are faithful Jewish men. They're not going to listen to this unless something extraordinary happened that totally changed their minds. The other would be another objection, five, is that this idea that people back then would believe anything, you know, superstitious, chronological snobbery, it's been called. People back then were more superstitious than you and I probably are now. However, they did know that dead people stay dead. Like, it, this wasn't like a, you couldn't just say, I was dead last week and now I'm alive again and everyone in the room's, oh, of course, okay, yeah, if you say so. I don't know why you would make that up. You know, they had to have seen something. There had to have been real evidence to get them all and thousands of people believed in a very short span of time. And then finally, people don't die for lies. Actually, people do. People will die for a lie, but they won't die for a lie that they made up. Um, this is from something called Super True Stories, Best Conspiracy Ever. Uh, it's put out by a group called Lutheran Satire. It's on YouTube. You can check it out. It's a, little, it's a little cartoon of Peter and Paul in AD 37 standing outside Jerusalem. And Paul comes to Peter and he says, So I've got this idea. Let's exploit Jesus' life and create a new religion. We'll say he rose from the dead. And then Peter says, And that if they give us their money, he'll raise them too? Paul says, no, no money. Women then? Nope, no women. Actually, people will hate us and revile us. You'll probably get crucified upside down, and they'll throw stones at me, beat me, imprison me, and eventually kill me too. Oh, and we'll need like 11 other guys to go along with it and do the same exact thing. And then Peter says, you need to quit drinking out of lead cups. Um, the cartoon ends. This is not a good idea, right, if you're making this up, but these men gave their lives, refusing to say that Jesus did not rise from the dead. They gave their lives for it. There is real historical reliability and credibility. There's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than virtually any other historical event. But even if I could prove it to you 100%, even if Marty McFly pulled up in his DeLorean in this drive and we got in the car and flew back 2,000 years and we hid in that garden 
and we watched a stone roll away and Jesus walk out, this passage is telling us it still wouldn't be enough to convince us. We could come up with other explanations, right? Maybe he's a mutant. Like, you know, his DNA could have something. He's Wolverine. You know, something strange. Stranger things have happened. Maybe he just heals and can regenerate himself. Maybe he's some sort of alien. I know that sounds ridiculous, and yet it's being posited by many highly intelligent people that that's the origin of life on Earth. Aliens. Maybe it was a magic trick. Joe Bluth appearing from the Aztec tomb. Maybe he had a twin. Like in that Christopher Nolan movie, I just ruined for you. Um, <laughs> verse 31. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Our hearts can find ways around even the most powerful evidence, but he is saying, you have the scripture. And God, the Holy Spirit, working by and with the word in our hearts is what is necessary to believe and to hear. Capon goes on. He says this. For those convinced that living is the instrument of salvation... Death is such an unacceptable device that they will not be convinced even by resurrection. From the point of view of those who object to the left-handedness of the gospel, you see, Jesus' mistake was not his rising in an insufficiently clear way and then sailing off into the clouds. That, if anything, was only a tactical error. His great strategic miscalculation was dying in the first place after such a grievous capitulation to lastness and loss, no self-respecting winner could even think of doing business with him. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It's not the life of the winner, it's the life of the loser who takes that cross and is willing to die. Dawn's grandfather, we called him granddaddy, my kids called him great-granddaddy, passed away uh, last fall. And uh, he had been struggling with cancer for quite a long time. He was 90 years old. Um, last spring, I got to spend about four hours with him just sitting on his back, in his backyard talking. Uh, he was raised sort of loosely Catholic, uh, had become disillusioned with the church after the abuse scandals that broke many years back, and it hasn't been back to church in, in ages. But I wanted to just talk to him about life and, and the gospel, and we sat out there and talked about a lot of things. We talked about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector, the big sinner, comes in and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and he walks away justified. And we were just talking, and I was asking him what he thought about this and what he was thinking about dying. And at one point, he, I remember so vividly, we were talking about you know, putting all your, your trust on Jesus, and it was like he took this big pile of chips at the poker table you know, and shoved them out. And he said, I'm, I'm all in. It can't be me. It's got to be his grace. And I, I remember that and, and cling to that a lot, that hope. But uh, Granddaddy, he was a World War II veteran. He fought in the Battle of the Bulge, which was, the, if you know a little bit, it was the bloodiest battle uh, in World War II in terms of American casualties. 
And Doug, Don's uncle, he came outside. They lived together. And Doug came out. And uh, we were talking. And he was like, Dad, uh, I've been doing a little research. And it turns out, like, there's several medals of honor that you qualify for that you never got. And I'm filling out the paperwork uh, to get them. And Granddaddy, he coughed. <clears throat> he coughed. And then he said, eh, what's that count for? Doug said, I think it counts for a lot. <laughs> I agree with Doug, by the way. I think of the things we give medals for, fighting in the bloodiest battle in American history in order to defeat the Nazis from conquering the world is a thing that we should give medals for, right? That's, he earned it. But what does granddaddy mean? What's that count for? I'm dying. And that's not why we fought anyway, right? See, he's getting this. He's not trying to be a winner. I don't think he ever was, really, trying to be a winner. And Capon goes on. He says this. The truth, rather, is that the crosses that will inevitably come and the death that will inevitably result from them are... If accepted, all we need. For Jesus came to raise the dead. He did not come to reward the rewardable, improve the improvable, or correct the correctable. He came simply to be the resurrection and the life of those who will take their stand on a death he can use instead of on a life he cannot. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so Lazarus is the Christ figure in this parable. Like Jesus, he lives out of death. Listen, life is short. We will die. But Christ is risen. And he can raise you too. So live and die and live again with him. Put all your chips on Jesus, and you'll see him on the last day. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us, for your grace to us, for your resurrection, whose power has spilled forward to us and the coming return that is breaking in already. As we see your kingdom come, may we live as those who believe, and may we die as those who believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.